0: So welcome to our final spring RPP colloquium. Uh, I'm David Hempton, Dean of the Divinity School. Uh, So thank you all for coming. I'd like to extend um, a specially warm welcome and thanks on behalf of RPP and the Divinity School to our two uh, featured speakers this evening, uh, Margarita Mora, who's just here with us, um, and Indira Remberdi, who's joining us from uh, Bishkek. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, and will be here with us virtually. Um, So it's going to be a wonderful experiment. We'd also like to express our appreciation to our moderator, Professor Dan McCannon, also with us here in the front row, uh, to the Sustainability and Health Initiative um, for Net Positive Enterprise, SHINE at MIT, for co-sponsoring tonight's session, and to the Reverend uh, Karen Vickers-Budney and Al Budney, and RPP's other generous supporters for making all this possible. As always, we'd like to specially thank our very talented uh, group of uh, RP assistants and staff for all their uh, tremendous work behind the scenes to um, uh, organise and host tonight's event. Let's give them a, a round of applause. Thank you so much. We want these sessions uh, to provide a space in which we not only learn about peace, but also practice peace with one another. To begin our time together, we'll start with some introductory words from two of our wonderful graduate assistants, uh, Odalis and Nick. So Odalis, please. Thank you.
1: Hello, welcome. Uh, We are gathered to to advance sustainable peace and to learn and grow in our peace practice. Let's begin by cultivating engaged, caring, and appreciative relationships here and in all our settings. Sustainable peace is a complex endeavor to which everyone has much to contribute. We'd like to share some aspirations, which we hope you'll, you'll help us keep in view. As members of one human family, How can we relate to one another in a spirit of love and friendship despite our differences, disagreements, and limitations? How can we acknowledge contributions from all cultures and traditions as equally valuable and appreciative, and appreciate and benefit from everyone's experiences and wisdom? How can we attend to our biases and to oppressive systems of power based on race, ethnicity, religion? gender, sexual orientation, economic status, and other factors, and empower one another to promote justice and shared flourishing? How can we work for equity and justice in ways that are humanizing, build connection, and promote healing and transformation? What wisdom, knowledge, and spiritual resources do we need to do this? Please join us in creating a courageous, respectful, and forgiving space conducive to deep sharing, deep listening, and mutual learning. Let's practice sharing questions and comments, as well as concerns and differences of view, while maintaining a validating environment across difference. We are interdependent, and we need one another to expand our vision and help us consider our blind spots. So let's seek deeper understanding when we see things differently, draw upon our spiritual resources, and support one another in constantly improving our approach to each other and to what we do.
2: Thanks, Dallas. We acknowledge that conversation of this kind can be challenging. Listening to other perspectives and sharing our own makes us vulnerable and can be uncomfortable. It can be hard to process in the moment and to find words. At the same time, few things are more essential for our growth and collaboration towards sustainable peace. So we thank you all in advance. To give you an overview of tonight's session, we'll begin and end with a moment of silence. After the introductions, our speakers, Margarita Mora and Indira Ramberty will present, followed by some conversation among our speakers and Professor McCannon. After that, we'll give you all five minutes to discuss your thoughts with your neighbors. Finally, we'll invite your comments and questions. If you prefer to submit your questions in writing rather than verbally during the Q&A, our RP- RPP assistants will collect those before the Q&A begins. At the end of the session, we'll briefly administer the survey that we've given you in your dinner bag, which we thank you all in advance for completing. If there are are ideas or concerns that you're not able to raise during the session, feel free to include them in the survey. Additionally, you're always welcome to speak to us at reception or to email us at the RPP website. Let's begin now with a moment of silent contemplation or prayer, in gratitude, in remembrance of all lives who are suffering here and around the world, and to set our intentions for our practice of peace. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Adelis and Nick, for leading us. Um, At the heart of our religions and the practice of peace initiative uh, is the recognition that the big problems confronting our human family today will demand an extraordinary degree of local and global cooperation to surmount, um, becoming ever more evident and obvious. Our struggles to reduce destructive conflict are closely intertwined with our struggles to address other big problems affecting our societies. Urgent among them is environmental degradation, which indeed is now imperiling the survival of all lives on our planet. A crucial topic for our One Harvard Sustainable Peace Initiative is the connection between peace practice and environmental sustainability. Given the multifaceted nature of the challenges, we are especially interested in how more holistic approaches can be of benefit, including those informed by the wisdom and practices of the world's spiritual and cultural traditions. We are asking. How are these at once ancient and innovative approaches playing out in particular communities, in particular places? Do they offer principles and methods that can be adapted in other settings to generate perhaps a global trend, something scalable? We're therefore very grateful for this opportunity to learn from two extremely impressive leaders who have been pioneering local and global efforts in the area of Indigenous guardianship, nature and peace, holistic being and living. So first of all, uh, this evening, I will briefly introduce our moderator, who will then introduce our speakers. Professor Dan McCannon. Dan, serves as the Ralph Waldo Emerson Unitarian Universalist Senior Lecturer at Harvard Divinity School, where he has taught since 2008. He studies religious and spiritual movements for social transformation in the United States and beyond, with particular emphasis on environmental activism, intentional communities, and socialism. Much of his research focuses on the Unitarian Universalist tradition and the anthroposophical movement. He is the author of five important books, most recently, Eco-Alchemy, Anthroposophy and the History and Future of Environmentalism, uh, University of California Press 2017, Prophetic Encounters, mm-hmm. Religion, and the American Radical Tradition, which won the Frederick Milshire Book Award. As Emerson Senior Lecturer, Professor McCannon is also deeply involved in the formation of Unitarian Universalist Ministers and professional leaders at the Divinity School and of Unitarian Universalist scholars at Harvard and right across the United States. He serves on many boards, panels, and has many leadership roles within that tradition. At Harvard, he has chaired the MTS Curriculum Committee for many years, which is not an easy task, and participates actively in the American Studies program of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. He's a wonderful colleague and, um, um, and uh, distinguished figure on our campus. So Dan, thank you so much for moderating and being with us tonight. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, David, for that kind introduction uh, to Liz and all the uh, RPP team uh, for all the hard work you've done uh, making this conversation possible and to all of you uh, for sharing in uh, the learning uh, that we will do together tonight. Tonight's topic combines two social movements that are of great personal importance for me, environmentalism and work for peace. I'm excited to learn from tonight's speakers about how these movements are mutually reinforcing. Active nonviolence is often an important tool in struggles to protect diverse ecosystems. And when those diverse ecosystems are protected, the many forms of life that live in them can become powerful allies with human beings in our quest for peace. Indigenous communities have practiced solidarity with more than human life throughout history. And I'm delighted to have the opportunity tonight to learn from the grounded wisdom that will be brought to us by Margarita Mora (coughs) and Indira Ryanberdi. Before I introduce them, I wish to acknowledge that this also is indigenous land, the homeland of the Mashpee Wampanoag, the Aquinnah Wampanoag, Nipmuc, and Massachusetts people. These communities continue to live among us and to exercise guardianship of tribally controlled lands to our west, south, and southeast. As we learn about indigenous communities at a greater distance, we honor those who are close at hand. I will introduce both speakers um, in turn and they will each speak uh, subsequently afterward. Margarita Mora is the director of partnerships at Nia an international um, non-governmental organization that promotes indigenous guardianship because it believes that the people who call ecologically diverse places home are the best safeguards of biodiversity in those places and by extension across the planet. She has dedicated the past 16 years of her life to devising and implementing strategies for supporting the efforts of indigenous communities and people to protect nature. Before coming to Neotero, she led the Conservation Stewards Program at Conservation International She's helped indigenous communities in 19 different countries negotiate conservation agreements that recognize and support their guardianship work. And the Atero's partnership model now allows her to build new bridges to additional communities as they strengthen their cultural wisdom and natural connection. Margarita is also a conservation fellow at the Mulago Foundation, a director's fellow at the MIT Media Lab and a Heinrich Bull Stiftung alumnus. In all of her endeavors, she seeks to honor the the insight that ecosystems will thrive only if the people who have sustained them and are most knowledgeable about them are also thriving. Our second speaker uh, will join us remotely from uh, Kyrgyzstan. And in a moment, she'll be up on the screen uh, with us. Uh, uh, Indira Berdi is the executive director of the Peace Building Center in Kyrgyzstan, which she founded in 2008. There she is. Welcome. Uh, uh, her work promoting peace in the Fergana Valley communities in Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan began a decade earlier than the founding of the center. Initially, she worked within mainstream legal and governmental or- organizations as she sought to build consensus and mediate conflicts among the residents of the valley. Gradually, she came to see that the solutions to conflict lie more in the human soul and in the wisdom of traditional cultures than in external institutions and regulations. The peace-building center is thus devoted to in-depth exploration, revival, and practical application of the traditional nomadic cultures of Central Asia. Through this revival, she and her colleagues are developing spiritually oriented models of development and conflict transformation that will build a lasting culture of peace. She joins us via the magic of technology, giving us a glimpse of her grounded work in the rich soil of Central Asia. And and please know that though you will sometimes see her up on the screen, even when you don't see her, she is still connected and participating in our conversation. So, welcome Indira. And now we'll hear from Margarita Mora.
4: Good evening, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here tonight, or not tonight yet, but soon tonight. Um, I am Margarita Mora. My native language is Spanish. I can talk very, very quickly in Spanish and sometimes in English. So if for some reason I am talking too quickly, please raise your hand and I will try to get the hint. Most of what remains of nature is in the hands of indigenous peoples and local communities. These are the areas with the highest diversity of plants and animals in the world. The areas with the largest carbon stocks Areas that are crucial and key for fresh water cycles, but also for food security. What many times we don't think about, because those lines probably you, you, you have heard before, right? Like, yes, this place is important for humanity, right? What we are not thinking about that often is that these are also the areas that have the highest cultural value to all of us. These are the areas where 95% All languages are spoken. People living in these areas have the right to determine what kind of future they want. Our job is to stand in solidarity with them, to listen to them, and to ensure that we can support the path that they have chosen. Last century, You know, the word conservation was streamlined. And conservationists are very passionate, and conservation was achieved by, in many cases, not recognizing people's rights, not recognizing their knowledge systems, not recognizing their contributions. And even more, like conservation was achieved by pushing people out of their territories, by fencing protected areas, by changing ways of life, even by manipulating people. The sad part is that it still happens. The good part is that we are talking way more about this now than before and it is happening less and less. Indigenous peoples are the ones that hold that, those places very, very, very deeply, right? And, and when we start thinking, um, more broadly, they are the ones that can show us some paths that we are forgetting. So I came to this work because I was very lucky to be born in Ecuador and I was very lucky to have parents that took me to the countryside every single weekend throughout all of my childhood. This led me to believe that when I was going to grow up, I wanted to protect nature. And I wanted to, be, to, to make sure that any work I do made people better off, right? And when finishing university in Ecuador, before I finished university, I had work already, but I was nervous because getting a job in Ecuador is not an easy task, particularly when you know exactly what you want to do. And you know, I was looking for several options and, and I got an internship that showed me exactly a model that was being built up. I was very, very lucky to be there at the time that I was there. And I was able to be part of a team that established more equitable relationships. And, and that was the goal, right? Figuring out a way, a model to establish equitable relationships between indigenous peoples and conservation organizations. And that was it. I fell in love. And I, have, I, I did that for, for 14 years, day and night, first in Ecuador, then in the region, in the Americas then also working in Africa and and in, in Asia and figuring out and understanding different ways of being, different ways of knowing. And it took me a while to realize that that was not enough. That was great, like amazing things were achieved, but that was not enough. It took me some time to realize that we have amazing maps about almost anything. You go to the internet, you go to Google, we we can see the world, we can see the moon, we can see the ocean, but you know. What we don't have is one crucial map, and we forget about this crucial map over and over. And that is the map of human identity. And many of the problems that we are facing now, whether uh, those are environmental challenges, whether those are identity crises not locally but globally can be seen as 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 problems that are linked to values and those values that were very very deep for us but we lost when we disconnect ourselves from our place There are people that still have those values, that have place anchor values, place anchor identity. And those peoples are indigenous peoples, right? And maybe, if we are lucky, they can help us reveal some of those values. But when thinking about this, the first thing that we need to do is recognize that those places that, believe me, in my eyes, are beautiful and I hold dear, forests, oceans, grasslands, they are way more than only that. They are not only the places where people gather food or find medicines or get construction materials or where we go to walk and enjoy nature. They are the places where grandmothers tell epic stories about They are the places where mothers take their children to learn about their culture, to learn about their food, to learn about their crops. They are the places where daughters and sons belong before they are born. They are the places of their ancestors, right? And that is huge. Right? They are the places where they find wisdom. They are the places that connect them to the spiritual world. They are all of that and much more. And when we start going even deeper, we realize that worldwide, there are around four million indigenous people, more or less 5% of the human population. And they hold these places very dear and very close to them, not because of conservation. Conservation is not even a word for them. They hold these places and uphold the values that that are super important for us as humanity, because these places is where they find their identity. And these places are where those value systems were built. Right? So. What we need to do in a way is recognize rights, recognize knowledge systems, recognize values and traditions. And overall, what we are looking into is thinking about indigenous guardianship. And indigenous guardianship is people, indigenous peoples with very close ties to place that have the rights to be there have the responsibility to manage those places and also have the capacity to sustain these vital systems of nature that we all depend on. And I want to share with you a couple of broader examples of what this means because it varies greatly from one place to the other. Like when we talk about indigenous peoples, we sometimes forget about the of peoples, right? Indigenous peoples in different parts of the world are very different and that is the richness, right? So, when thinking about the Pacific Islands, there we have 17 large ocean nations managed by indigenous peoples. We, you know, personally I come from the mountains in the highlands of Ecuador, so for me the ocean is beautiful but when I used to look at the map of the world, that part of the world, I was like, oh, those tiny islands and how did those people communicate with one another? Like, wow, impossible, right? Now, I see the map and I only see connection. The water is what connects them. It is not a barrier as, as I used to see it, right? And it is a place where you have these people managing 10% of the earth, of the surface of the earth. A place, just to give you an idea of a scale, where between 60 and 70% of the tuna catch happens, right? A place where people have been moving around from island to island way before there were GPS or that longitude and latitude were were figured out by by Europeans. A place where they move from place to place because they knew their environment so well. They knew the waves, they knew the stars, they knew the animals, whether it's marine or birds, they knew the currents, they knew knew reflections of light that come from islands, right? And it is not that they just move around and, and luckily they got to Island B, right? They actually did it on purpose. And the beauty of it is that nowadays there are still those navigators. We can still find them. And we can find them, yes, in the voices of Nainoa Thompson that was here recently, but we can also find them in small tiny villages such as in the Solomon Islands where people hold that knowledge very, very deeply. And we can see through them that they are holding large commitments They are not only still managing some of their customary coastal management systems, but they are upholding really big commitments as as it is the case of the Marae Moana Initiative in in the Cook Islands, right? The other part, it it is closer to me, but it is very big, right? Like Northern Amazonia is the most remote area of the Amazon basin, and it is of the size of six Californias, right? In this territory, you find 2,003 indigenous people, well, collective territories managed by indigenous peoples and 400 indigenous groups that are connected through history but have very different languages, very different perspectives, right? I had the privilege to be in one of these territories very, very recently. And it was beautiful to talk to people for whom life, is is and cannot be fulfilled unless you finally connect to the sacred source of the forest and that is what guides you and your future depends on that revelation what you are going to do is based on that if you don't receive it you are lost these are the same people that wake up in the morning, and when I am saying morning, it is before dawn, 3 o'clock in the morning, and sit down and share dreams, and interpret their dreams. And based on that plan, they, 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 they are day. They. they know that if they had a good dream about hunting, they have to go hunting. They know that if they had a bad dream, they, they shouldn't go hunting, right? It is these deep connections that, that make these people unique, right? And in this part of the world, as well as in other parts of the world, these people know the animals, the plants, the rivers, the rain, in a way that I will never ever learn about because I am not from there. And I know that people study some of these places very deeply, but we have to acknowledge that none of us will ever get to know them in, in, in their full dimensions. indigenous peoples face big 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 pressures and what they are seeking now is for partnership and support and recognition and you know partnership we all hear about partnership and uh, yeah and i was going to say like i am a partnerships director so i hear a lot about partnerships right but what we what we don't understand sometimes is that partnership doesn't mean imposing your ways of being, your ways of thinking, your ways of knowing, they actually mean something way more simple. They mean respecting people. They mean honoring compromises. And they mean standing with indigenous peoples in the good times and in the bad times. And they also mean that we have to learn how to listen. We are really good at talking. Right? But we are not always so good at listening. And listening careful to these people that know these places better than anyone will ever know these places and who know what they need better than anyone else. You know, one of the big challenges is having that capacity to just listen and listen and wait And listen and not rush, just listen and be. And that is something that we have forgotten and that we also need to learn. You know, I have a four year old boy turning five soon. He is a sweetheart, of course, I am his mom and I am going to think that is the case. Um, And many times I ask myself whether he will have the privilege of learning from people that see the world in a very different way, that have value systems and identities that are directly linked to a place. For whom the word conservation is not a word, right? It is a way of being, it is life. And that is when I start asking myself over and over whether I will be the right kind of ancestor. And, and I also ask myself, what kind of ancestor will we collectively be? And this is not an easy question, right? But this is one of those questions that we, if, if we start thinking about it more deeply, Maybe it leads us to reconnecting to those those values, to revealing those values that are more place anchored, right? And maybe it also leads us to think in a different way about, about the past, recognizing that we come from someone that set up this stage for us to live now, but also recognizing that we are responsible for the future, right? And, and that we need to change the way that we think about well-being. And we need to stop thinking about well-being in terms of what we get out of the world. But we need to start thinking deeply on what we are leaving behind. And, and maybe maybe, we might get out of these environmental challenges that we are facing and we might recover from the identity crisis that, that, that we are also facing. So that is what I wanted to share with you tonight. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you so much, Margarita, for the wonderful question that you ended with. What kind of ancestors will we be? And now we turn uh, to Indira, Ryan Beardy.
5: Thank you. Um, good evening, dear friends. Um, do you hear me well? Yes, yes. Good evening, dear friends. I'm very glad to be on this very interesting meeting. Thank you to Margaret and RPP for inviting me. I will try to do my best to share what I can and to add maybe some more information, knowledge about our region, Central Asia, which is very, I think, important region and very unstable one. Let me switch to screen, yeah? To presentation okay um, so my presentation is called traditional or indigenous culture and modern society In my presentation, I um, will try to uh, review briefly some uh, general conclusions which building Center came to um, regarding indigenous culture. Indigenous culture as an important source of spiritual worldview and life practice in contemporary society. Also, indigenous culture as a strategic resource for long-term development and peace promotion. For the past ten years, I and my colleagues were involved in a wide spectrum of activities on exploration and practical revival of um, Kyrgyz indigenous nomadic culture. Also, since 2014, PBC is a part of very unique experience of consolidation of seven kindred indigenous peoples of Pamir Tian Shan and Sayan Altai Biocultural Region through the permanent form of indigenous people of Pamir Tian Shan Altai. It's obvious today that modern society has come to a very complex and critical point of its history. Perhaps as never before, our future depends strongly on how we human beings, as individuals and as society, use our inborn freedom of will, our positive will to self-perfection, spirituality, and honorable life practice. And as the main step towards better prospects, we will have to decide, or we are already in the process of deciding uh, which system of worldview we would like to base our further life on. Today, we are facing a tough and possibly the last clash of two basic world view, world between uh, two basic uh, worldview systems. On one side, we have so-called uh, rational consumeristic worldview based on hard materialism this kind of worldview at some point of human history became dominant and it is a big separate topic for pondering and discussing when how and why this happened what we know for sure right now is that it has assured the majority of people of that human being is a mortal creature that everybody fights his own battle on this world and that we must take from life as much as possible at any price this life position, actually, as we can see already clearly now, brought us to total self-destruction. On the other hand, we have so-called spiritual worldview based on profound faith in the Creator and wisdom regarding every aspect of the world of His creation. This kind of worldview guided us uh, towards understanding and experiencing that human being is a spiritual creature which the great, with the great and unique mission. That we all are interconnected and that life should be built according to the principles of harmony with everything and everybody surrounding us. This spiritual worldview uh, existed always, but today we need it as never before for our survival. As we could confirm for ourselves through our own experience, there are two main sources of this worldview today one is ancient wisdom and faith. The brightest example of it is indigenous culture. Another is what we call prophetic faith. Mm, the best example of it is Abrahamic religions. Modern multidimensional knowledge represented by some great school sciences and uh, philosophic schools serves as the rational proof for ancient wisdom and prophetic truths. And by doing so, becomes by itself a valuable supportive source, so-called secular source of spiritual wisdom today. Today, we observe that vast number of people dynamically convert or transform from the camp of hard materialism to the camp of tacit soft materialism, acquiring more spiritual view and understanding of human being and human life. Vast number of people return to their indigenous roots, acquire their strong cultural identity, and choose to live according to the precepts of wisdom of their white ancestors and vast number of people in the world comes to monotheistic faith and chooses to follow in the footsteps of the great prophets. Some people go through full cycle of spiritual transformation from being absolute materialists to becoming profoundly faithful persons. All this tendency uh, reflects tectonic shifts in the system of values of modern humanity. In particular, it reflects intuitive understanding by human beings of the fact that ultimate salvation can be sought only in acquiring true spirituality at individual level and introduction of spiritually oriented models of development
2: at societal or collective
6: level.
5: Kurdistan can be taken as a perfect and intensive example of such intuitive movements and transformations in society. Kyrgyzstan today is an arena for rapid unfolding of all the possible sources of spirituality. We can observe active revival of nomadic traditions, popularization of very secular or science-based personal growth systems, and incredibly fast dissemination of Islam as well as other religions among various layers of population. And with all this going on, Kyrgyzstan is still a secular state which tries to hold on to democratic values and secular humanism with its basic human rights and freedoms. Each of the three sources of spirituality which are indicated on the slide has its own unique place and audience in our country. Unfortunately, we also observe that there are many acute issues or problems within each source of spirituality. On the slide, we try to present only the main one. Regarding science-based source, there are issues, <clears throat> these issues are boundedness to only human capacity, tacit denial of prophetic truth, and homocentrism. If we look at culture-based source, we see such issues as loss of authentic knowledge, in many cases irreversible loss of authentic knowledge, distortions of indigenous traditions and nationalism. And finally, religion-based source today suffers from distortions of religious traditions and teachings, subsequent discredit and division of Islam and radicalism. This is actually not only about Islam, all the religions suffer from these problems. Apart from problems within each source, there are also some uh, contradictions between the mentioned three sources of spirituality in Kyrgyzstan. Especially this is the case regarding the relations between Kyrgyz indigenous culture and Islam. So in general, how things will go further, time will show but what is quite clear even at this moment is that no matter what the map of spirituality of Kyrgyzstan will look like in the near future, Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyz indigenous culture shall have a best spiritual niche in our society. In other words, nomadic indigenous culture plays and will play in the near future a very important role in the country at individual as well as collective levels. Further in my presentation, I would like to focus a bit on this point. So what is traditional culture and what makes it so valuable today? During our exploration and practical activities in the field of modern revision and revival of indigenous culture of Kyrgyz people and kindred indigenous nations from Siberia, we came to conclusion that indigenous culture is a coherent system or set of mechanisms of survival and development at individual and collective level. These mechanisms are conditioned by nature and operate at all the possible levels of human existence, transcendental, psycho-energetic, mental, biophysical, and social. We call all this a spiritual-cultural core. Comparison of various indigenous peoples of Pamir, Shan and Tayan Altai biocultural region showed that each indigenous nation has this kind of spiritual-cultural core. By the content of this core, the nations differ from each other but by the dimension, structure, and functions, they are very similar to each other. Now, let me very briefly go through the structure and contents of spiritual cultural core of indigenous people using the example of Kyrgyz culture. I thought it would be quite important to share this information here with you as it is the structure and contents of the spiritual cultural core which makes indigenous cultures so valuable and useful today. Spiritual cultural core is a system of spiritual self-preservation and development. It is a priceless gift which our ancestors left for their future generations and which help our nation to survive and develop through various times and on best territories. This system has certain structure and is constituted by several levels, each of which corresponds to a particular level of human existence. The first level is the culture of maintenance of energetic health, or the culture of connection with the ultimate spirit, with the ultimate creator. Here we can find all the transcendental or extraordinary cultural phenomena, the majority of which are not even explored by science by this time, or even cannot be, maybe. For example, uh, narr- um, live narration of epic heritage, sacred places, transcendental instrumental music, and many other cultural phenomena. All this can be called energetic codes of Kyrgyz people. The second level is the culture of maintenance of psychoenergetic health or the culture of connection with human soul or subconsciousness. This includes all the traditional contemplative practices and psycho techniques aimed at keeping human being psychologically healthy. For example, uh, healing practices, meditation called in Kyrgyzstan Sukkot, prayer practices called tilenu wishing, uh, good wishing, and the blessing practices, bata, and many other cultural phenomena. All this together can be called psychoenergetic energetic codes of Kyrgyz people. The third level is the culture of maintenance of moral and ethical health, or the culture of connection with human mind, or maybe to say deeper, the culture of connection with the common sense. This includes all kinds of values and rules which are encoded in rituals, games, dances, languages, and many other cultural phenomena, and which are aimed at regulating relations between human being and God, human being and society, human being and nature. All this is called informational codes for these people. And finally, the fourth level is a culture of maintenance of biophysical health if we talk about individual and social health if we talk about community. In other words, it is the culture of connection with the material and social reality of human existence. This includes all kinds of martial arts and other sports, national cuisine, handicraft production, traditional medicine, and many other cultural practices and um, phenomena. At the collective level, we can find many positive elements in um, agricultural management, In the system of upbringing of future generations, of young generations, uh, tribal self self organization uh, and management, uh, social security, and many other uh, cultural phenomena. All this can be called physical or social codes of Kurdish people. This is a small collection of pictures from our regular uh, use camps. This building uh, center holds this kind of camps for um, students, for teenagers, uh, schools, uh, pupils, uh, to um, familiarize them uh, in conditions of high urbanization with their spiritual heritage, with their spiritual cultural core. So here you can see the learning traditions, learning national glades, uh, handicrafts, martial arts, communication with elders, and many other things. So ultimately, we see that spiritual cultural core of each nation is something very natural and very comprehensive, something which remains in action even when all the artificial or built over life programs, for example, ideologies malfunction. And again, by the example of Kyrgyzstan, we can see that these natural self-preservation and development systems return sooner or later into society, even after many years or centuries of domination of various alien ideological, ideologies, and lifestyles. This is the picture from Arkiv, so, Kyrgyz indigenous community in Soviet times. So, Kyrgyz women driving agricultural machine. Being a nomadic nation who not once in its history managed to build and maintain um, strong states based on unity of tribes. Kyrgyz people started losing its nomadic worldview and lifestyle in nineteenth century. After association with Russian Empire, then we faced communist ideology, ideology jointly with Russia. In nineteen ninety one, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we became an independent state and welcomed sincerely Western liberal ideology and market economy. By 1998, due to economic hardships, people's most popular idea was that things became even worse than during the Soviet times. In the condition of informational vacuum and total disappointment, those who did not fell into nostalgia for Soviet past or did not get completely money oriented entered uh, the domain of religions. By 2004, we could observe rapid rise of religions, especially Christianity and Islam. Then two revolutions happened in 2005 and 2010, and that marked the rise of Kurdish indigenous culture. So, during the next 10 years, by 2014, indigenous culture got incredible popularity among all the layers of society. Over 40 big organizations emerged to work directly and professionally for a revival of indigenous culture and biocultural diversity in general. However, at the same time, tensions between Kurdish indigenous culture and Islam grew rapidly. At the end, this process brought a series of open conflicts between Muslim clergy and proponents of the movement for registration of new Kyrgyz religion, called Tengri. Tengri movement demanded from the state commission on religious affairs registration of new Kyrgyz religion, but got official and justified rejection from this state body after another series of repeated open clashes uh, in mass media between Tengri movement and Muslim clergy Both sides strangely calmed down. Since 2015, we think Kyrgyzstan got to the point at which at least key public activists and leaders from both sides understood that Kyrgyz traditional culture and Islam in reality of Kyrgyzstan should be considered only as the comprehensive means for spiritual development, making society more moral, peaceful, and responsible. It was clear for all of us that attempts to use culture and religion for other purposes can have very heavy consequences. These are pictures to uh, exemplify quickly this fragile but very needed uh, consensus between religion and indigenous culture in our uh, country. So this is the women wearing hijab, but uh, being involved in uh, indigenous um, kinds of sports. This is very uh, famous ulama is Ali um, uh, in Islam. And he's wearing traditional Kyrgyz hat. Uh, This is um, a traditional female head covering. And it is actually uh, not contradicting to some of the uh, clothes of Islamic tradition. And this is just to give the general idea of the holiday prayers we have uh, in Kyrgyzstan. So as I mentioned above, the rise or reactivation of Kurdish indigenous culture in society became quite visible in 2005. Since that time, indigenous culture in our country served honorably and addressed effectively many urgent and acute needs and issues of the country. In particular, our indigenous culture became a valuable and real resource for emergency management and development. Further, I would like to say a couple words on that too. So this is the picture of first revolution that happened in Kyrgyzstan March revolution, which was called Tulip Revolution. This is another revolution April 2010, which happened in five in, in five years yeah, after the first revolution. So this is the building, uh, one of the buildings of law enforcement bodies. This is the state building. Two revolutions that took took place in Kyrgyzstan in 2005 and 2010 were a big test for the country. Each revolution catalyzed and brought to a violent level four most dangerous and most hidden conflicts in Kyrgyzstan. Government versus people, poor versus rich, ethnic Uzbeks versus ethnic Kyrgyz, South versus North. All these conflicts together created a vast chaos and real security threat not only for Kyrgyzstan but also for the whole region. And in this situation, there were three very effective um, internal third parties who played a crucial role in stopping the violence and restoring peace in the country. They are custodians of indigenous culture, religious leaders, and respected elders of local communities. They all together in various regions and in various specific situations contributed much into stopping the chaos and violence through the power of their mediation, meditation, uh, mediation negotiation, consensus building, based on the respect they had from society. Total destruction of the governmental buildings, killing people of deposed regime, were prevented. Inter-religious, interregional and inter ethnic conflicts were stopped. Volunteer public order squads were organized to deal with marauding. All this was done with participation of outstanding people of local and religious communities. Another set of very successful roles that indigenous culture plays currently in Kyrgyzstan is the role in development. Kyrgyz indigenous culture today helps us in developing strong and positive cultural and spiritual identity, especially among young population. Um, it also helps to provide economic survival and self-actualization. And it also gives us hope for long-term spiritually oriented models of development. Vast number of young people through indigenous networks acquired traditional values, escape problems such as addiction and violence, found self realisation through traditional arts, sports, music and etc. Many community members uh, succeeded turning culture into some business enterprises in the field of handicraft production, agriculture, tourism, entertainment and other fields. Some public activists and leaders quite successfully lobby application of traditional knowledge in legislation, for example, in pasture, ma- pasture management, and hold country scale discussion of spiritually oriented models of development. So ultimately, Kyrgyz traditional culture succeeded in, firstly, popularization of family values, respect to elders and nature, healthy lifestyles, altruism, and etc. Secondly, indigenous culture. Uh, Help to develop a socially oriented and small scale businesses at the grassroots community level, which apply traditional culture, knowledge, and technologies. And finally, and the most importantly, indigenous culture today helps us to um, continue elaboration of spiritually oriented conceptions and models of development, culture based criteria, and indicators of development. The latter, in our opinion, has a special great and great potential, and not only for Kurdistan. Elaboration of spiritual models of development can help us not only um, to make systematic, systemic changes in, in our country, but also can help us join wor- worldwide movements and platforms striving for alternative visions and practices of development in the conditions of global changes. So this is the picture of Bhutan. Pictures taken in Bhutan. I will explain why I show them now. In 2014, I and several other public activists had a chance to visit such an interesting country as Bhutan. I personally was lucky to meet the leaders of National Happiness Council and learn more about the concept and practice of Gross National Happiness. At that time, Bhutan's experience was quite unique and inspiring. During this period of time from 2014 to 2016, BBC joined with the information agency Akipress, one of the biggest internet uh, agencies in Central Asia, organized a series of public discussions on possibilities and prospects of spiritually oriented models of development in Kurdistan based on indigenous culture. As a result, we could come with a general or initial set of qualitative criteria for evaluation of foreign investment and other projects of national scale. And as you may see, they reflect the structure of the indigenous spiritual cultural core. Later on, holding the permanent forum of indigenous people of uh, since 2014, and participation in the work of International Action Group on culture-based indicators of well-being helped us to continue this valuable work. And we continue this work to until today. So we, do, we continue doing this. This is a collection of pictures of uh, permanent form of indigenous people, just to show you the idea. Uh, these are the leaders uh, coming from uh, almost seven uh, indigenous uh, people of. Uh, Siberia, Pamir, and Kyrgyzstan. So as it is quite obvious through the experience of Kyrgyzstan, traditional culture has a vast potential today in development and peace promotion, as well as in deeply personal spiritual transformation of ordinary people. Therefore, The activities on modern revision, practical revival, and application of indigenous culture in daily life, and even introduction of principles and values of indigenous culture into existing social systems are very important and needed today. Traditional culture gives us enormous hope for the better future, because wisdom of ancestors never fades away. And let me finish my presentation with very wise words of a very wise man, Hazrat sheik al-Darikat al Rasul, who wrote uh, around 15 years ago in his book, Search for Truth, uh, these um, uh, wise words. Today, philosophers, politicians, scientists, and social reformers are striving to alleviate human suffering. But they are no closer to the desired goal. The materialistic approach divides humankind and sows the seed of mutual hatred and selfishness, leading to conflict and clashes between different interests and classes, and between the planet itself and its inhabitants, inhabitants who are supposed to be stewards. A deep study of human nature and an exploration and investigation of the inner world of human being will acquaint us with the true destination of man and the means for reaching it. The different creeds of religion and spirituality are nothing but elaboration of this fundamental truth. Thank you for your attention. Why don't we clap
3: for a dear again, now Okay, so what we will do now is that um, we'll bring, there she is back on the screen, and Margarita and I will come up here, and um, first I'll invite the two of them to be in a little bit of conversation, and in a few minutes uh, we'll bring all of you into the conversation as well. So I invite either one of you to pose a question to the other, or a comment.
4: Indira, I want to ask you a question. It is tricky because Mm -hmm. we didn't prepare this, but it just came to my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, The work that you are doing is very, very inspiring. And in the setting that, that, that you are, it is really creating huge change. And you didn't even talk about the conflicts with the neighboring countries, right? And I am wondering whether the people in Kyrgyzstan and, and some of the, the indigenous peoples that you are working with, also have these kinds of questions on, on, on what kind of ancestors they want to be and whether that is one of the things that, that grounds them or, or whether they have something similar that allows them to think about the past and the future.
5: Uh, well, I think that Central Asian uh, indigenous peoples and uh, indigenous peoples of uh, uh, Siberia, they have much in common. And the biggest reason of that is um, Soviet past. And of course, I think that uh, we are thinking about future, but what we noticed that uh, during the forum, we noticed that all these indigenous uh, people, all these indigenous nation, uh, nations, they um, look forward for something bigger than just um revival of some separate uh, cultural phenomena or some separate aspects of uh, indigenous culture. They are striving for something bigger, for some kind of systemic changes. For example, those indigenous uh, people who live in Siberia, uh, they live, um, of course, in the framework of. Uh, Russia, and their situation is a little bit different. Um, and I don't know how much in the future they can uh, reach some systemic changes, maybe, uh, which will uh, result in um, bringing indigenous culture in front lines of uh, policy making. But we hope for better, if I understood your question. But we have much in common, because we have this Soviet past. If I didn't understand your question,
4: please clarify me. I didn't get it. It is great. Thank you, India.
3: Indira, would you like to pose a question for Margarita?
5: Um, I just would like to make a comment uh, on Margarita's uh, speech that was also very inspiring speech, and I think it was very sincere, very emotional. Um, and I think that one point uh, which she made is very important: that indigenous. Uh, People of the world today are seeking for partnership, and they are seeking for positive attention because indigenous um, nations they have a lot of things to say. Again, this is a very complicated question. How it happened that uh, indigenous culture or even religion, which is with the point of human history, somehow uh, went to not disappeared but somehow lost its positions. And we have today the severe, hard materialism and the severe, hard Russian consumerism, which brought us to where we are now. So I just would like to support uh, Margarita's words that indigenous uh, nations today, they need support, they need partnership, and they need respect. And uh, the whole society will not regret about this partnership, because this partnership in very near future will
3: bring very good solutions to global issues that we all have. I will pose one question for each of you before we open it up wider, and I'll begin with you Indira. Uh, In the United States, conservation efforts often focus on forested or mountainous landscapes, and so I'm very curious about what um, care for grasslands landscapes look like. What are are some of the specific uh, traditional practices that are allowing the Kyrgyz people to care for grasslands and perhaps to enrich biodiversity in grasslands that have have lost some of their biodiversity?
5: Well, um, in Kyrgyz tradition, uh, tra- traditional culture, there are many technologies which um, uh, allow to preserve uh, the land. Uh, for example, um, you know that Kyrgyz uh, Kyrgyzstan is a um, highland, and uh, the main um, uh, specialization of our agriculture is um, pasture agriculture. So, since we are nomadic and uh, we have this um, pasture cattle breeding. And I think that Kurdish people have lots of very good technologies for pasture management. And uh, some pasture management technologies were already accepted by uh, the government as uh, part of legislation on pastures. Um, For example, if to come to a very simple example, is the nature of um, uh, aboriginal uh, cattle. Aboriginal cattle is very, Um, adapted to um, local uh, conditions. And uh, that is why being grown up there and being fed there, they are participating in circulation of all the natural um, materials in in nature. So they do not um, spoil the land. And land itself is being fertilized and developed further. So this cycle, uh, human beings, cattle, and then cattle, land, soil, and soil, plants, This cycle is very important and it preserves itself. But as soon as you take away from this uh, picture uh, indigenous cattle, for example, and put another, as it was during Soviet times, another kind of cattle, this uh, very fragile uh, cycle or system uh, breaks up. That's what happened during uh, Soviet times. Today we cooperate with one Buryat uh, organization. Um, it's uh, uh, is an indigenous uh, nation living in Russia, and uh, one of their basic focus is uh, revival of aboriginal uh, cattle, aboriginal Burat coal, which is very important because they, at this moment, uh, deal with Russian beef cows, which are not good for uh, pastures, for um, the types of pastures they. Uh, have um, uh, in their place. This is one of the examples,
3: just to see. Thank you so much. Yes, it's it's really wonderful to hear how indigenous people partner with indigenous uh, cattle breeds. Um, Margarita, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how uh, indigenous guardianship works in places where indigenous communities have lost um, power over their land because of colonizing powers and the land has lost much of its biodiversity. How, what are some of the strategies that communities are using to regain the capacity to practice their guardianship?
4: You know, it is is a really good question because the moment that you start losing your place, the moment that in many of these places deforestation happens or grasslands are destroyed or oceans are depleted, with those activities, also you start losing the cultural aspect. Mm-hmm. Usually both things come together, right? And, and there are many efforts, particularly in, I, I have seen in these last couple of years, here in North America, in, in Canada, with the tough history that indigenous peoples have in figuring out ways on how to reconnect to the land. You know, that, that is one of the key issues that you hear over and over, that when people lose connection to their land, they lose themselves, mm-hmm. right? And many of us have not got that connection that our ancestors had to the land. Coming back to my point that we are facing an identity crisis and a, and a value systems crisis because we are not connected anywhere in the longer period of time. Right? While our ancestors at some point, and indigenous peoples that are grounded, they know the place, but not only, you know, these are the places that grandpa- great-grandparents share with the great-grandchildren that they will never meet, right? It is this type of identity that goes over generations. And we have to be very mindful that when we cut it that there, there, there's a way of coming back, but you have to work on it. You know, we, we, I have a, a colleague that is who introduced me to wonderful Indira that always talks about our ancestral memory, mm-hmm. that things are not fully lost. We might think that they are lost, but you have many cases of indigenous peoples where those things are brought back in the most incredible ways.
3: Thank you. Uh, what I'd like to, what we're going to do now is to begin the process of inviting this whole community into conversation together. Uh, but instead of immediately asking each of you to ask a question, uh, we'd like you to take a few minutes to be in conversation with one or two people seated near to you, uh, and you can you know, talk about anything that's been stirred up uh, by these very profound presentations. Uh, you can begin thinking about questions you might like to ask. Uh, uh, If you wish to write a question down on a piece of paper, uh, our staff will, uh, very good, uh, come around and take those and during the actual question time, uh, uh, I will take questions both in the written form and by recognizing hands. Uh, But first, just spend a little bit of time hearing the voices of a few other people uh, to see what is, what is stirring in this gathering. Sounds like everyone's had a great conversation. I have a few questions down on paper here, and I think a few more uh, will uh, be coming to me. Uh, so there's still time if you were writing something, if you want to hand it to one of our folks. But I'll also I'll start with a question uh, out loud. So who would like to pose the first question? to one or both of our speakers. I'm wondering about uh, the move movement around the world to most of the population being uh, drawn to the cities, mm-hmm. and especially in China. Uh, every, the, uh, the uh, 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 Villages are razed and, and, and tossed aside, and people are forced to live in these high rises, and in, you know, all over the world. Uh, cities are the, where the action is and uh, where
6: the jobs are. It's, and the, uh, it's going to be harder and harder to bring the uh, indigenous uh, world into uh,
3: affecting that. Thank you. Would one of you like to start?
4: Uh, I can. I can start with with that question. And. You know, that, that is one of the, of the big questions that we make ourselves at Nyatero. Because you have that phenomenon, people living in indigenous communities that due to education many times have to leave, right? Or that sometimes they need a job and there are not income opportunities in their places so that they have to leave. And, and they go to the cities and in the cities sometimes they have to put aside who they are because they are not treated as, as they should, right? Racism is a, is a, big, is a big issue, right? And, and the beauty on the other side is that, yes, there is this drive to move to the cities because the cities is where you find everything. And the cities is where you get lost, where nobody knows you, right? In, when, when you're coming from an indigenous community, you know everyone, everybody knows you. You go to the cities and suddenly you are no one. Right, unless you have a couple of pals that, that know you from your place. Um, one, one of the things that, that we have been discussing more philosophically than anything is that we also live in a time where technology is helping people also stay, right? Like where, where you have access to electric panels that you can move from place to place in a very efficient and cheap way. And, and where you have part of the society, like the, the wealthiest part of our society, they are nomads. They don't live usually in one place, they live in many places. And they manage to do it,
3: hmm.
4: right? They, they manage to live in different cities. Why not think that that is also something that these people living in places can get to do again? Like maybe we get to the point where, where that, is, that is feasible again. Hmm. But you are right. Like cities drown people, and whether it, whether it is forced or whether it is not forced, people are like young people are drawn to the cities. At the same time, many people want to be co- be, be back to their place because that's where they belong. Right.
3: Indira, would you like to speak on that question of urbanization?
5: Well, I think that urbanization uh, is uh, really a big a uh, negative factor, actually, in being uh, of indigenous culture. We very often discuss it in our country. For example, how you can make contemplative meditation uh, in a big city. Because uh, um, ancient Kyrgyz would meditate in a very open areas, maybe on the mountains. And how you can do that, I don't know, to clean the fifth floor of the big buildings or So it's difficult and it's a very big hit, I think. But again, uh, indigenous culture is a very uh, unique uh, system of survival and development, and there are many uh, possibilities to adapt. And I think that uh, modern society should think about adapting. Maybe uh, if some um, uh, cultural phenomena cannot exist, but we at least can take their principles. For example, principles of um, uh, relations of uh, young generations between uh, uh, with uh, elder generations. So it is eternal. You don't need uh, I don't know some kind of forests or other places to practice this. Um, and then also prayer practices for example. you can practice them so it doesn't require any kind of external special conditions. Uh, and if you take um, epic heritage, epic heritage is always there. The narrators in our country, maybe um, centuries ago, they traveled from one national housing to another. But today, they can from one apartment to another or to gather a lot of people in one place. For example, we had a special tours of narrators throughout the country. And they would meet in a very modern uh, hall sometimes. So that doesn't require. So it depends on what kind of things we're talking about from this spiritual cultural core. But the majority of um, phenomena of spiritual, cultural core can be um, uh, surviving in modern conditions. I think it is not a big factor, but it is a factor.
3: Thank you. Uh, I will read one of the questions that came up to me on paper. Uh, uh, And the question is, what is the relationship between religions which were brought in to indigenous communities, such as Christianity and Islam, and the indigenous religions themselves in people's lives.
4: So we were just talking about that. <laughs> so you know, it is it is interesting because these these big organized religions are almost everywhere. Like probably one of the places where I haven't seen them is where people in voluntary isolation live. But they are trying to to reach out to them as well, right? And and what is interesting is that. In many cases, it doesn't end up being one or the other, it ends up being a mix. It ends up people figuring out a way of having, of having both, the parts of, of both that are, that are the best for them. Within that, there are extremes, right? There are extremes where, where people are forced to believe in one way because of, of many, many reasons. Um, but altogether, it is, it is beautiful to see that despite organized religions arriving to many places, if you go a bit deeper, as long as you have certain clear aspects of, of, of the values still there, as long as you have language, and even when languages are, are lost, right? but th- those things connect you to your culture way deeper than, than only religion itself.
2: Thank you.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, in Kyrgyzstan, you saw in one of my slides and in one of the sections of my presentation, I told a lot about uh, relationship between uh, indigenous culture, Kyrgyz, nomadic culture, and Islam. That that was a big issue, actually. But today, I think there is a kind of a consensus uh, between culture and religion. Um, And as long as um, culture proponents and uh, religion proponents keep to to the basic human values, the basic wisdom that is in religion and in indigenous culture, everything should be okay. But as um, uh, the more we um, kind of try to concentrate and focus on external things or moreover on distortions, then the conflicts come. And this is a very interesting thing to sort out for society, especially in Kyrgyzstan. And I usually say that Uh, those uh, people who are in Islam and they are very negative, uh, they uh, they have very negative attitude to indigenous culture, I told them that you probably do not know to full extent our culture. But Mm -hmm. to those in indigenous culture who say that Islam is something horrible, we don't need that, I say that um, you probably don't know Islam to full extent. Mm -hmm. Personally, I, for example, um, love and uh, Uh, even work in the field of uh, indigenous culture but I'm also Muslim, I'm practicing Muslim and I think that um, internal combination of these two systems of spirituality is very important and the cases of such combination are growing in our country, especially, um, uh, um, especially in the north. So I think we can combine that and there should be no conflict. And Kyrgyzstan's case is coming to that when we have this consensus also. Fragile consensus, but we are still coming to that. But again, uh, there are some problems, of course, and they come from distortions, and they come from aggressive people who would like to use religion and who would like to use indigenous culture for their purposes, sometimes purposes which are very far from spirituality, which are very far from uh, bringing common uh, good for society.
6: Thank you. Marguerite, you? In particular talked about um, place-based identity as um, uh, a strong thing that that people should aspire to Um, and as you were saying that I I I have flashing in the back of my mind my sense that in in America and in Europe um, place-based identity currently is playing out feels to me as a very toxic force Mm -hmm. and uh, so it makes me try and think through that uh, what is the difference between what you mean by that and uh, and what people hear when they talk about such things mean by that and uh, and I wonder if it's, if it's maybe if I can articulate it and you can tell me um, if it's more not so much place based but first of all ecosystem based um, more specifically and if, if it isn't even more than that not like a a place where you are, or a thing that you have, but uh, a, a thing that you participate in, mm-hmm. i.e. A pa- participating in a pattern of relationship to an ecosystem, if that's the thing that you mean by identity? Yeah, no, that is a
4: really good question, and thanks for raising that. I, I, have, I have, yeah, I have seen the, 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 exactly the thing that you mean, I, I was not talking in, in those terms. And what, what I am thinking about, when, when I am talking about these anchored identities, that are linked to collective territories, right? That are not in individual identities that do not have like a common long-term history in common. That have not developed their joint knowledge systems about their ecosystems and the your place itself throughout thousands of years. I, I I I am thinking more of of yeah of of that kind of people that um, the place is who they are. Like if that is the, if if that place disappears. They disappear. When, when you think about um, white nationalism, it really doesn't matter whether they are here or whether they are in New Zealand or whether they are in, in Australia, right? It is, it is exactly the same thing in terms of how, how they might relate to that, right? While when I am thinking about place anchor identities, I am thinking of the people, as, as I mentioned, that it is not that their identity was formed recently through colonization, right? But it is whose identities has been formed for, for thousands of years and whose identities is so linked to their territory, so linked to their territory, that they know exactly what means when a bird sings. They know, I, I was talking with, to someone one day and was like, oh, I started seeing these ants. So now I have to go and start planting my plant plot, right? And at least I, I don't see this right amount of ants. I am not going to start doing it because I know the rains might not come. Right? It is that, that deep, 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 deep knowledge that it is hard to have when you are just in a place for one, two, three generations. It is the thing that you get when you are in a place
1: for many, 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 many generations. Thanks. Yeah. So, uh, Marguerite, you referred to partnerships and then I, don't hear you, I didn't hear you say really any more about what kinds of partnerships. What are some positive partnerships that are out there these days that are actually working and helping? Um, and then I have a second question. Um, so that relates a little bit to the others, but the young leave, get educated, how do you get them back? Are there, you know, how do, what kind of incentives are there to bring the educated back to help preserve yeah. their communities, their cultures? So those are my two questions.
3: And yeah. I'm going to repeat every question, even yeah. if it's specifically for Margarita, to make sure in is hearing. So this question, which was directed to Margarita, had two parts. Uh, the first uh, was a request for more specific examples of the kinds of positive partnerships uh, being cultivated, and the second is how do indigenous communities re-engage those younger members uh, who have traveled to further places for their education?
4: Yeah, so so going to the first question, and there are some examples, and there are wonderful organizations that are doing this. In my role at, at Niatero, is a fairly new organization that was established with the mission to secure indigenous guardianship of vital ecosystems. How we are thinking about partnerships is, is um, ensuring that through all of our actions, we are level in the field. And because there, there is always a, a, a power dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. That, is, that is unavoidable. Right, But you have to give part of your power away actively in order for that level field to, to, to be better, to, to level the field. Um, the other thing that we are really pushing for is not for us to decide, Like no, we, we, we as an organization are not necessarily the ones that are going to be working directly day to day with an indigenous group, but we are going to stand with them in, for good and in good the good times and in, and in the difficult times and and that means that we are going to trust them and we are going to let them choose who they want to work with in order to achieve some of their vision of, of well-being their self-determined vision of their well-being um, based on their priorities and we are happy to support those organizations that they choose right so it, it, it moves away from us, defining an organization that is here in the U.S. or in other countries that, that tells you like, oh, these people are great, to more like, okay, let's meet the people, let's, let's let's develop a relationship, and let's see who they want to work with, so that we fulfill our mission of relinquish power, and they also get stronger in deciding what kind of relationships they want to have with us, but also with the other organizations that are, that are in their environment. Because it is not that anyone alone can do this right and, and it is also not that one organization alone can do this we need a lot of organizations hundreds of organizations changing the way they work with indigenous peoples for, to succeed and then the second question was How do you, really you know that is such a you know it is it is such a complex situation it is such a complex situation and and i don't have an answer it would be wonderful to have that answer but I was talking with an indigenous leader from, from Brazil recently. This, I, I don't know if you read that Brazil elected their first indigenous, indigenous um, person for, for Congress, right? For the Federal Congress. And, and she had been advising us for a while, and we were talking about this, and she told us a while, while back, our elders were super eager to send our kids to university. And they made this huge effort to establish those links to, with local universities and ensure that people got to secondary school and for them to get the scholarships. But now they are questioning themselves whether that was the right strategy because they live and they would love to come. Not all of them, but many people want to go back. Because life in the city is nice at some point, but it is super challenging on the other side. But if they don't have an option, it is hard for them to return, right? And then I was talking with another Leader from another country, actually from, from Ecuador, and he was telling me that his elders told them like it is a bad idea for you to go to university. Like we don't want this. We don't want this. Like a while back, right? This is not a good idea. And they pushed like the younger generation pushed and was like yes, we we want to do this. We want to do this, right? And then they went to university and now they have a, a couple of leaders that through that process think that the Western perspective is better and that mining should be an, an option. right? And, and most of the population is like, ah, what did we do? The elders were right. We should have listened to them more. Why didn't we listen to them? right? So it is, it is, it is hard. What it is clear is that you need indigenous people that know well their, their, their options. right? And if they want to go to university, that they have a clear picture of what does it mean for them in the future, that they have those discussions on like, okay, with so many people educated, will they come back? Will our villages, will be afterwards totally empty? Or that, that, that I have a third case, where an indigenous community is as well paying for the higher education of their kids. But they sign a contract. It's all, all done internally and with very strict bylaws. They sign a contract that they have to come back, they can only be out for five years. And when kids turn 18, they have one year to decide whether they want to belong to the community in the long run or not. They have to decide that before they turn 19. If they decide that they don't want to be part of the community, they lose a lot of the social cohesion that the community has, right? If they want to go to university, I think that they give them like four years or five years, like, okay, go they finance that because they have been very successful on the business side, but they have to come back. And if they don't come back, they have to pay every single time that they did. So, so, you know, people are creative and, and indigenous peoples are, are trying to figure out ways. There is no one
1: solution. Yeah, I just would like to add
5: a couple of things. Um, I just would like to say about the a short comment about partnership of international philanthropic organizations with indigenous communities. Uh, from uh, 2005 around, um, a number of big philanthropists entered Central Asia with their programs on support of. Uh, Uh, biocultural diversity and revival of traditional culture. And that was a very good partnership because this organization came in the conditions when we had no resources because, you know, post-Soviet countries, we, in economic uh, terms, of course, uh, the situation was very very hard. And uh, this partnership, I think, was very effective. But today, for example, uh, if to go back to this partnership from this, um, let's say, how many, 14 years' perspective, Uh, Today, we see that this partnership should be, uh, with time, transformed into something bigger. Uh, Before, uh, many philanthropists, they supported uh, revival of uh, some separate cultural phenomena, some separate aspects of traditional culture. But today, I think that philanthropists um, should um, move forward with that help and maybe to transform to something bigger. And by this, actually, I mean uh, investing into consolidation activities of this indigenous people of the region, uh, investing into uh, development of uh, more conceptual uh, things, uh, more uh, things related to long-term development models based on indigenous culture. Not only this um, separate phenomena, for example, epic heritage on writing the books and making research on particular cultural phenomena. So these are things that are already in the past at least in Kyrgyzstan. Today, for example, Kyrgyzstan needs maybe to step forward and to see how indigenous culture can become the basis for something uh, bigger, for development, not just being culture itself. Because you see, uh, well, in my analysis, I showed that um, uh, indigenous culture today is one of the mm, biggest resources that we can play out and we can help with not only our uh, situation, but also the situation in the world. So that's the, as for the um, bringing people, young people studying abroad, for example, living in better conditions to local communities, I think this is a realm of a personal choice. And for example, in Kyrgyzstan, maybe we cannot give good incentives anyway. So if the person decides to serve his own nation and if his or her uh, consciousness uh, develops at that level, when you understand that you have to live maybe beyond your ego motives, right? Uh, You have to serve something better and to help other people. If uh, the person comes to that uh, level, he or she will return anyway. And we saw a lot of young people who uh, realized all their ambitions abroad and then they came back already successful and they helped in terms of business, for example, or in terms of their expertise, or in terms just being a member
6: of community
3: and uh, serving uh, his or her
6: nation in personal way. Thank you. I actually I admire what you two are doing. But what comes to my mind, OK, I'm a writer, is I have this impression of terrible poverty and suffering associated with these groups. I hope I'm wrong. That is my impression. Um, What do you have to say about that? That in preserving them, you preserve the terrible uh, suffering or poverty, is that true?
3: So um, Indira, I'll just repeat the question. Uh, um, And she said that when she thinks about indigenous communities, she often immediately thinks about the extreme poverty and suffering uh, that many indigenous communities are experiencing in her perception. And she's wondering, how, if is that a correct perception? And if so, how does it fit then with efforts to preserve traditional ways of life?
4: Do you want to answer that first, Indira?
5: No, please go ahead. Yeah,
2: your English is more, um, like,
5: faster than something. Yeah. <laughs> it is
4: such an I mean, interesting perspective, right? This perspective of, of, you know, there has been this quest from the West to save the others, and to define that the others must be suffering if they are not as us, and there are places with indigenous communities that suffer deeply, 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 and a lot of that suffering has to do with colonialism and with the history and how they were treated. Like when I, 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 as I told you, I am not from this region, I have mostly worked in the tropics, and when I came here to the US and started learning about the history of Native Americans and the histories of First Nations in Canada, I was appalled. And a lot of what you see in terms of, of yeah, alcohol abuse, domestic abuse, etc., it is not because of, of poverty itself in terms of money. It is because they lost all connection to land. People in this part of the world, and in many other parts of the world as well, were moved from the place that they New and love somewhere else. It, it, it and and not only that. It's hard, but I I, I couldn't believe that in Canada and in the nineties, children were taken to St. schools. I have a boy, that's why I cry. Kids, in some places, parents, in some other places up to, grandparents and great-grandparents were beaten because they spoke their language. Poverty is not them being poor, it is brought by us but not letting people be who they want. And yes, it is a challenge in terms of, of people wanting better lives, and that is totally their right. And that is, if, if that is what they want, that is their right, right? But in my experience, I have found some of the most beautiful, happiest people ever in those communities. Like, to the point that I wish my son will have the opportunities to explore, and sense, and be, and at least live a bit of that life. Because that's something that, I assure you, none of us has. Thank you.
3: Indira? Mm-hmm.
5: Well, that's kind of a sad question, I think, in a way. But um, I think that the notion or the concept of poverty is a quite um, concept, I mean, quite wide concept. What do you mean by poverty? Do you mean economic poverty, right? Or do you mean poverty spiritual? So uh, if you mean economic poverty, of course, um, the situation many indigenous people of the world very hard, and I understand uh, Margarita's emotions. But as for the Kurdistan, I can say, uh, again, that in our country, indigenous culture by itself became a very good source for overcoming this poverty. And it depends on how you look at this. If you use indigenous culture as resource, uh, maybe in our country, I'm not going and um, analyzing examples of other faraway countries' indigenous Uh, Cultures, but in Kyrgyzstan, many uh, people who were left completely uh, with no means of living, they used indigenous culture and they built very solid businesses and they they become very successful. So I think that in Kyrgyzstan it is not the case of poverty, but also it is the case of uh, gaining uh, dignity and prosperity through your indigenous culture, and I think that. In previous conditions, at least we cannot be that um, pessimistic about indigenous culture. But even in the communities where poverty is very strong, I think if you look at those communities, the majority of indigenous communities, there is um, spiritual richness. I have met a lot of leaders from indigenous um, communities, and uh, even if they live in poor conditions economically, they are very strong personalities. And maybe God wanted them to live in those testful conditions so they become stronger spiritually. So being pityful about poverty of indigenous cultures, I think it is a little bit limited vision of the situation.
3: If if I could just add, um, uh, connecting to um, what Indira was sharing earlier about the idea of gross national happiness as it's been developed in Bhutan. And shared um, with many other places, including Kyrgyzstan. Uh, uh, I think that provides a model that helps get a richer sense of this because it's looking at the multiple dimensions uh, that go into uh, uh, into well-being of people, instead of a sort of one-dimensional model where you assume a group of people uh, is suffering if they're economic activity is low and their market-based economic activity is low and happy if it's high. You know, it, pro- it provides a much richer model that doesn't exclude the economic, but sees it in the context of everything else.
5: That's why yes, thinking. I agree with that, actually. That's a, that's a good reminder. Uh, so poverty actually, in general, is not absence of happiness. So economic well-being is not the ultimate uh, indicator of your happiness. And Bhutan and other countries actually prove that. If you take all those um, uh, indicators that are stated in gross national happiness concept, you can see that the time that mother can spend with her children, uh, the fresh air that you can breathe, uh, fresh meat, milk that you can eat every day, the time that you have at your disposal, you don't have to rush and uh, you, know, you don't have to be always busy making money or something like that. So these are the parameters of happiness that are maybe not covered by the notion of um, poverty. So it's something different. And that is the problem actually today, that if you think that indigenous cultures and indigenous people are poor economically, that means again, you say that material, uh, status is most more important than your spirituality. What we are trying to, uh, not to prove, but to bring up to the whole world that your spiritual condition actually defines your well-being. But that's very important because that is the basic problem which started with the loss of the spiritual mindset, spiritual consciousness. That is why we are in the condition today. We wanted more, we wanted more economies, more money, more um, things, um, I don't know, more possibilities. That's why we are in the condition we are today. Thank you very much for the wonderful sharing. Uh, So there's more questions for Indira. So in one of your slides, right, you mentioned Kyrgyz
6: spiritual cultural core. Can you tell us like, what's the difference between spirit and culture? And also elaborate further what does it mean by
5: transcendental phenomena? What's the difference between like, spiritual health
6: and psycho-spiritual health? And how can we actually incorporate them in our life?
5: Well, the difference between these two le- uh, these four levels are very uh, conditional, actually. And I think, in a way, it is theoretical. But we just wanted, uh, we divided this spirit and soul level or uh, energetic and psychoenergetic energetic uh, levels just to show different cultural phenomena. For example, uh, in Kyrgyz uh, traditional culture, there is such a phenomena as a um, uh, live narration of um, uh, epos, manas. This is the phenomenon when the person is gifted, so the narrator is gifted, and he does not memorize all this um, epos uh, material. He just knows that because it is gifted through the dreams, and there is a whole difficult process of initiation. So in order to um, to divide that kind of phenomena, we make this energetic health uh, level. And uh, the difference uh, this. This kind of phenomena, for example, transcendental music, there are special um, um, musical instruments which put you into altered state of consciousness. That's a very different state of consciousness when the person uh, really reached the transcendental conditions. So that's why this is the level where we talk about purely a connection to something transcendental, uh, purely energetic, you don't recognize that. That effect really goes into you you just have to be in the presence of the um, uh, epos narrator. You have to be in the presen- um, presence of the musician. So this is the level. The second, um, psycho-energetic health. Here we mean the spiritual practices, which you can do by yourself. You can uh, submerge yourself. So your contemplative practices, uh, meditation, uh, prayers, and things like that. So they are not automatic. Here you have to do it. And it is a kind of a, <clears throat> how to say, it, um, uh, and, uh, psycho-energetic because it is related also to less subtle level of your consciousness uh, to your subconsciousness, which is not your spirit, actually. So in indigenous language, you divide, there is a spirit. There is something that really shapes when you uh, listen to your music, listen to your narrators, Something that is not your subconsciousness, but subconsciousness is something uh, more, um, have said, materialized form of spirit, and that is why these practices um, built on this level. So these practices work on activation of this level. So I don't know if maybe because of the language limitations, I cannot really explain that. Can you uh, also clarify again the question? What else would you like to know about this?
3: I, I think you got you got exactly um, what he was looking for. Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, we yeah. are almost out of time. I have one question that I've been neglecting here on paper. Uh, for Margarita, could you say a little bit more about your idea of an identities map and how you would use colors and what you would try to develop with that map?
4: Well, that is a tough one, right? <laughs> I, I, you know. In the last months, in the last year and a half, when we started this idea about Niatero one of the first things that they told us is like, oh, you're talking about indigenous peoples. So show us in the map where they are, right? And, and there is not yet such a map because it is a very complex mm-hmm. um, issue, right? People think about Cultural identity and, and what does it mean? Does it mean your religion? Does it mean the food that you eat? That you, does it mean? Does it mean your territory? Right. In our case, we have been thinking a lot about territories that are, are held collectively, and that map does not like a full map of that does not exist. You you find parts of it, but the full map is is non-existent and it will never be completed in a way. Um, What it is beautiful is that at least there is the willingness to advance on that, respecting that some people, some indigenous people do not want their territories to be in that map because that might be a liability for them politically or spiritually or in, in many different ways. And for others on the other side, having such a map would be such a powerful tool to say like we exist. it, it, it varies broadly from one place to, to the other. But yeah, like what 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 it is clear is that you have these identities that are beautiful and uh, are are linked to, to those places profoundly, right? They, they are not linked to those places just because we arrived now, but they have been linked to those places for generations where people jointly have managed those territories in a way that makes sense to them, that they have de- evolved their um, spirituality, they have evolved their wisdom, they have evolved their, their relationships with one another and to the place in a way that that the 95% of us, sometimes it is hard for us to grasp or understand what it actually means, right? And that is the kind of identity that grounds us, that ensures that we have value systems that are attached to those places in that larger perspective of time, not in the immediate time I am afraid of, of, of outsiders because they're going to take something from me, but it is more like that deep, deep, deep knowledge and connection to that place and that deep identity uh, that it would be beautiful to have, to show how incredibly diverse we are as human beings. And that is only the 5%. Imagine how we were before, mm. where it was way more than that 5%. If you are interested, one attempt to show, at least a, there are there are two attempts that I know of to show more broadly, like this, this global map, one of them, came out a few years ago, and it is about the languages. Like, where, where are indigenous languages? If you Google that, you're going to find a, a, a pretty cool map. And the other one came out recently, which is where are like, indigenous peoples, like, wh- where they are. And, and that has been a really difficult map to make, and there, yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of people not fully agreeing on it. But it shows you how much of the earth is in their hands, luckily.
3: Thank you, um, I'd like to invite each speaker to just take a minute or two to share any uh, concluding thoughts uh, pulling together what is moving on you in this conversation. Uh, and Margarita, why don't you go first?
4: Um, what, what I am feeling is, is uh, yeah, I am, I am grateful grateful for you to come grateful for you to listen grateful for you to ask questions grateful for you to to think about these issues that sometimes we just don't think about i personally have learned a lot in the in the last years right it, it has been a deep 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 learning uh, experience for me and and i think it is so important to share because it is hard for people to understand the context of people that live far away and 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 yeah what what I want here is to just give you a glimpse and maybe get you interested in, in learning more about these topics. Um, because you are going to get inspired, right? There, there are some amazing things that if you don't get inspired, you have to keep googling because you will find something that it is really going to inspire you. So yeah, what I want to say is, is thank you for, for coming, and thank you for, for listening and, and bearing with, with me.
3: Thank you. Indira?
5: Um, I just wanted to say that uh, in indigenous culture there is one very particularly important aspect and I think that this aspect is intrinsic not only to indigenous cultures but also to all the religions and this aspect is uh, spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would recommend to all of us that we pay uh, much attention to this aspect because only through uh, daily spiritual practices our hearts awaken and we can perceive reality in true perspective. Because the problem with modern society is that we rely too much on our minds, we ask too many questions, and we perceive too many things through mind and get really wrong answers. But if you see the majority of real good indigenous leaders or uh, really good religious pr- practitioners, you see the calmness in their eyes, and you see that understanding of things in a true perspective. And maybe that understanding is the most important thing. So that is why I would call that we pay attention to those kind of aspects, to tacit aspects of our culture and religions. And thank you very much for inviting me to join this very interesting meeting. I'm sorry that I have some limitations in English because I have not been practicing. Although I studied in US for a long, long time ago, But uh, I did not practice uh, English for many years because I was involved in local communities activities. So um, good luck to all of you. And I think that your community is very important for indigenous culture, for indigenous people in the world, and for general transformation of our uh, understanding of the world. Because people like you will uh, go to various aspects, various organizations, to various structures, international organizations and we all together can make
3: change thank you thank you both so much for such a such a rich evening where we were learning new things in every moment. Uh, uh, It's just a wonderful gift. Thank you. Uh, And now I'd like to invite Dean David Hempton back up for a few bits of business uh, related to uh, the RPP.
0: Many thanks to Margarita and and Dira again for um, uh, sharing these uh, wonderful experiences and expertise uh, and to Dan, thank you so much for moderating so thoughtfully and and um, uh, 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 and professionally. And um, I, I suppose, like you, left with some, you know, big questions that were uh, that were set out for us. You know, what what kind of ancestors will we be? Is a great question. Um, what kind of well-being and happiness do we value? Um, What are the connections between place and culture and spirituality and identity and well-being and spiritual practices and perspective? How to bring all of those things together. um, So this is, I think someone said that this is a steep learning curve. And it has been a steep learning curve, I think, for us uh, this evening to um, encounter um, um, indigenous cultures that are not often in the tops of our minds. So thank you both very much, uh, and thank you, Dan, also. Um, If you can bear with me just for a few minutes, um, uh, just to um, 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 deal with some important business about the RPP, Um, um, we'd like to give you just a few minutes to fill out the survey um, uh, that you have um, in your uh, uh, dinner bags. Um, um, And um, this is, um, Uh, So we do this uh, twice a year um, to receive your input, which is tremendously important for us. Great, thank you so much. And and we have a little bit of extra time after um, I I sort of finish out the announcements. Um, We'd like to, just as we began with a very short moment of silence, we'd like to um, have another short moment of silence just to reflect a little bit on what we've heard tonight and and um, either in meditation or prayer or 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 or, 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 or um, uh, mindfulness. Thank you um, if you have uh, ideas or concerns that you weren't able to raise at the session or mention in the survey feel free to tell us afterwards or drop them in the basket that will be on the table up front right here um, we are very grateful that you attended our RPP events this year um, um, uh, thank you for a wonderful year of, of our colloquiums. Uh, Over the summer, you may wish to check out the resources on the RPP website, which include a brief uh, bibliography, feature articles, videos of our RPP colloquium sessions from the past five years, which is a very rich archive, and more, so do please feel free to uh, uh, visit that website. You will also find more information there on the Sustainable Peace Initiative, including a few resources that we welcome you adapt. For use in your own institutions and communities wherever um, they are. Um, so we hope you will um, consider doing so and help catalyze a much needed global trend as you extend your circles of influence. Another resource on our website are videos of students and fellows from across the Harvard schools in many countries discussing the impact of RPP programming on their growth as transformative leaders in a wide variety of professional fields. And we'll be adding some more of those uh, uh, over the summer. If you haven't yet done so, please be sure to join the RPP mailing list to receive announcements of all our uh, future activities. So since this is our final spring session, I'd like especially once again to give a special thanks to our RPP team for all their work behind the scenes. Um, um, and their graceful uh, hosting of us uh, at our events throughout the year. And um, uh, I'd like to pay a particular tribute to Liz, who has um, brought... um So thank you, all of you, for what you've brought to us. It's been a remarkably rich year. Um, And thank you for all the energy, creativity, intellectual leadership, connections, um, and spirituality you've brought to our proceedings. So now, um, uh, please join us for a reception with tea and refreshments in the lobby. Um, And the Harvard uh, uh, Coop will have books for sale right outside of Sperry. So we wish you all a good night, a happy and peaceful summer, and we have a gift for um, uh, Margarita, um, which we'd love to pass on to you as a memento of your uh, um, time with us. Thank you.